All right, thank you. Everyone take a seat. So uh, let me review very quickly from last week. We saw that covenant is the basic structure of the Bible. Covenant is just a formal, um, legally structured relationship, right? God doesn't have a casual relationship with us, but he has a very intense relationship based on uh, obligations, rules, structures. And that's how all relationships, I mean, that's how human beings relate to one another, right? If you're dating somebody, right, you can come and go as you please. There are no rules, Maybe they're implicit rules. But when you're ready to make it truly serious and lasting, you have a wedding ceremony and it's this formal process and you make vows and there are there's a legal structure to it. So that's the same with God. Um, we also saw that covenants last forever. They can never be annulled. So every covenant the Bible speaks of never ends. Um and we saw that, therefore, each covenant, each subsequent covenant that happens, it isn't um, canceling out or, or deleting or um, changing the covenant before it, but it adds on to it. It builds on top, right? So you could think of it as a kind of um, structure where the, the, the bottom covenant, the base covenant, which is the covenant made with Adam in, in Eden, that is the fundamental structure of reality. That is the fundamental way that um, human beings relate to God. That never changes. And in all subsequent covenants, it's just filling out the details of the bottom covenant. And we're going to get to the, Mos- the covenant with Moses, or through Moses, and we're going to see that um, there's a lot of details, right? So um, it, it, you could think of it as... Um, it starts out really uh, generalized and then it gets more and more specific as we move through the story. And therefore, if you understand covenant in that way, oh, and then the basic structure of a covenant is that if you keep the covenant, you receive blessing, enjoy blessing. If you break the covenant, you will experience curse. Hello. Um, and therefore, if you understand covenant, it is the fundamental organizing principle of the Bible and you can think of the Bible as a single unified story. It's just one covenant. Because remember, no covenants are ever canceled. Covenants go on forever. So the covenant made with Adam, that covenant in the garden is the whole story of the Bible. You could tell the whole story of the Bible just through that. Um, another way to think of the basic framework of the Bible is that there are two kinds of covenants. There's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Um, the covenant with Adam was a covenant of works. It was based on um, Adam's moral performance. And then all subsequent covenants are covenants of grace. Um, grace meaning this is how God relates to us. It is no longer based on our moral performance. It is now based on God's gracious gift uh, and mercy to us. So the covenant of works is obey and you'll live, disobey and you'll die. And then the co- all the covenants of grace is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you will live. So that sounds completely different, right? Um, and we'll talk about why they're so different. But actually, as we talked about it, the covenants of grace, the covenant of grace, which is all of them, is building on top of the covenant of works. It doesn't contradict it because 
what it simply says is that Adam was our head, our representative, um, and he failed and all humanity fell with him. And then now God provides a new Adam, a second Adam. And the second Adam, if we go under his representation through faith, then we will receive uh, the blessings that he deserves. And of course, um, this, this, this uh, new representation is far greater because not only does Jesus Christ give us his blessing, but we, he receives our curse, right? So it's all the more astonishing and, and, and grand. Um, so let me emphasize the covenants of grace do not contradict the covenant of works. It operates within that paradigm. But um, when you understand the covenants of grace, you see that it is the organizing structure of the Bible because from Genesis 3 and on, um, it's one story, right? It's God's rescuing pursuit of humanity, giving us blessings we don't deserve because of, of the second Adam, because of uh, the, the Savior. And therefore, um, it really helps you to read the Bible because you don't read the Old Testament as some sort of different operating system or different way that God relates. A lot of people say the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God. But if you understand covenant theology, which is what I'm teaching you, um, that's not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, he is a God of mercy and love just as much as he is in the Old Testament. And he is a God of judgment and justice just as much in the New Testament, right? It's, it's the same. It's, it's just that the, the, the way it's worked out, um, um, the, the circumstances are different, but it's the same principle. It's always grace. God is always pursuing us with his um, forgiving love. And then a good way to understand the Old Testament and New Testament, what's the, what then is the difference? It's not that we relate to God any differently in the Old Testament. It's always by grace. The difference is that um, in the Old Testament, Christ is anticipated. He's, he's spoken of in types and shadows. And then in the New Testament, it's the revelation, it's the actual coming of Christ. So that's the difference. It's the difference between, you know, it's sort of a veiled, shadowy anticipation versus the, the, the reality, right? Versus the, um, versus the actual thing, right? Which is Christ. And therefore, when we read the story of Israel, I think this is a very unsatisfying and a profitable way to read the Old Testament. When we read about Israel, when we read about Israel in Egypt, when we are uh, enslaved, right, under this oppressive master, when we read about Israel journeying through the wilderness, uncertain of what the next day holds, depending completely on God, having to d- deal with trials and tribulations, when Israel is in the promised land, fighting off, you know, these uh, pagan neighbors, that's our story. That's the story of the church. Israel is the church in the Old Testament, and the church is, the, uh, is Israel in the uh, New Testament. Um, that's the review. Any quick questions? before we move on to the covenants. All right. So um, I want to get to the Abraham and Moses, uh, the Mosaic covenants, especially the Mosaic covenants. I'm going to try to go as fast as I can through the Noah covenant. Um, the Noah covenant is, this is kind of a weird statement to make. It is the least important covenant. Um, it, it, it is mentioned the least in the New Testament. The covenants with Abraham and Moses and David are mentioned Many, 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 many times. Um, so it's not a major part of the story. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, we can talk a, a bit later maybe why that is. But um, I just want to tell you the story of, of, of the flood and Noah really quickly. 
And I think the best way to think of it is that it's the drama, the test in Eden repeated. Noah is depicted as the best of humanity, right? Genesis 6-9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So Noah is the best, right? He's like the, the, the most godly um, of all humanity. And then Noah emerges out of the ark and what does he behold? He sees this pristine earth, right? Completely washed clean. It's like he's back in the garden, right? This new creation, then he's tested with the fruit of a tree. He fails by drinking of it, right? By becoming drunk. And then he ends with shameful nakedness. What story does that remind you of, right? Just like Adam. So I think the whole story reinforces the lesson of Eden. And what is the lesson? Humanity, fallen humanity cannot save itself. Even the best of the human race cannot give God perfect righteousness. Uh, but let me talk about uh, the Noah Covenant. Um, it's a covenant of grace, but um, it's a covenant of grace with, it, with an emphasis on restraint. You know, um, if you think of, we're going to get to the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant, God is just pouring out blessings um, and goodness onto Abraham. In the Noahic Covenant, God is saying, I'm not going to destroy you, <laughs> right? Even though humanity deserves destruction, there is a hint of redemption, a hint of God's saving plan, um, but the fullness of, his, fullness of it awaits, awaits us in the Abrahamic covenant. So let me read to you the actual covenant. It's very short. Genesis 9, just four verses, no, three verses. God says, I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So it's, God is going to restrain himself. There will never be a worldwide destruction by water. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So a couple of features to notice. Notice that um, there's no if-then language, just like there was in, in the uh, Garden of Eden. It is a promise. So that's what I mean by promissory. It's promise-based. A promise is completely different than, um, than, than like a legal, like a, like a work contract, right? Um, if you, if you, if you bring in a carpenter to your house and you say, if you build me a bookshelf, I will pay you, you know, uh, your fee. But if you build, if you don't build me the bookshelf, I will not pay you the fee. That's a work contract. But if you tell the carpenter, I promise I'm going to pay you on this date and you, me- you make no mention of his work, then he doesn't have to, it, it doesn't, it's not dependent on his work. Does that make sense? So that's all the covenants of grace. It doesn't depend on human performance. We can talk a little bit more on whether or not human beings, um, obedience is still part of it. But um, it's entirely promise-based. It's a unilateral promise. God is going to bless humanity and and the curse in this covenant is implicit. Because um, remember, there's always a curse if you break it. And so it's a carryover from the Adamic covenant. The curse is in the bow. We, we're thinking of a rainbow. That's certainly um, what it is. It's a rainbow. But actually, in the, in the Hebrew word, the word for bow and rainbow is the same word. 
So it could be a war bow, like a, a bow in, um, in battle. And notice that the bow is pointing upwards. So this is a very subtle sign that God is saying the curse is going to fall on him. Right? Um, so the gospel is hinted at, but it's not yet explicit. Um, that's, that's all I'm going to say about the Noahic covenant. Um, any quick questions before we move on to the two biggies, Abraham and Moses? All right. All right, let's go to the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is the quintessential. It is the paradigmatic. It is the sort of the, 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 the covenant that is highlighted always in the New Testament whenever it talks about grace, whenever it talks about um, the gospel. The New Testament is continually referring to this as the embodiment of the gospel. So let me just read you, for example, Galatians 3, verses 7 through 10. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Uh, let me just pause there real quick. First of all, it shows you that the covenant of Abraham is still in effect because he's still talking about it as if it's still in operation. And notice that you participate in this Abrahamic covenant, not by blood, because who are the sons of Abraham? Not, his, not necessarily his genetic descendants. I don't think anyone in this room is a physical descendant of Abraham. Um, but by faith, you are sons of Abraham. So that just shows you, by the way, again, reinforces that the, the unifying principle of the Bible is covenant because we are Abraham's children, which is such an important concept all throughout the Old Testament. Um, we Gentiles are by faith. And let me keep reading by v- verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So there it is, very explicit. What Abraham received, whatever is happening in Abraham, it's the gospel. It's the very same gospel of, uh, uh, that's being revealed in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. Abraham heard the gospel. That's what it's telling us. That's what Paul is explicitly saying, right? That, by the way, teaches us how to read the Bible, where we say, well, it's only the gospel if I hear and see the name Jesus Christ. No. Abraham heard the gospel. He did not hear Jesus Christ, but he heard the gospel. And that teaches us, oh, you can go back to the Old Testament and look and listen for the gospel without having, you know, Jesus be mentioned explicitly. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, for all, and so here he contrasts another principle, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So here he's contrasting um, the promise given to Abraham to how things were operated in the garden, works of the law, right? Um, obedience, moral performance, if you rely on that, you will die. You will come under the curse. Abraham, I'm um, sorry, Adam failed. Noah failed a kind of like redramatization version of it. And so that's the point. The covenant of works by human performance is dead. It's over. It condemns us. It leads to hell. We need a savior. Uh, we need to rely. We need to receive by faith. Why do we resist Faith seems so easy. A lot of times people object. That just seems like um, an easy salvation. Just believe and then you'll be saved. No, it's, 
incredibly difficult for human beings to believe and trust because it means you lose control, right? Um, it means that now your life belongs to God. Uh, but if you have works, then you're still in control of your own life. Um, so we resist. Let me, let me read you another wonderful verse, Romans 4, 2 to 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, right, meaning um, if he could receive the blessing of the Abrahamic, I'm sorry, of the Adamic covenant by his moral performance, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, that's from Genesis, uh, I think Genesis 12, and it was counted to him as righteousness, actually Genesis 15. So this righteousness is this reward. It's the blessing that was offered to Adam in the garden, and now he receives it by faith. And we receive it by faith. Remember the tree of life? Remember the Sabbath day, the, the, the day of rest? All of these blessings and more we receive now by faith. Um, so let's talk about the actual Abrahamic covenant. I think a really good way to think of the Abrahamic covenant is that the whole world has fallen, right? So this is the world, right? And it's covered in darkness and human sin. And God says, I'm going to rescue the whole world. Uh, I don't know if you can see it with the lectern. Um, God says, I'm going to rescue the whole world. Um, you know, there's Habakkuk 2.14, right? Um, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover, will, uh, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the whole world is going to be um, redeemed. But God doesn't do it all at once. He starts with the beachhead. Um, does anyone know the concept of, of a beachhead in war? So uh, World War II, Normandy. So when the Allies retook Europe from the Nazis, they didn't just like march all throughout Europe and retake it in one battle. What did, how did they start? Where did they start? A beach? What was the name of that beach? It's a very famous beach now. Normandy, right. So the Allies landed on Normandy. They established a small little beachhead, like a little triangle strip of land. And then slowly you expand the triangle. And eventually they retook Europe, right? And so um, this is the beachhead right here. And that is Abraham. God is going to retake the earth, redeem it, and he starts with one man, right? He calls Abraham out, out of his pagan superstition and, you know, his pagan neighbors. And then um, all through Genesis, this little beachhead grows extremely slowly, <laughs> right? He's like, who's going to be the next person? That would be Isaac. There's so much drama, right? And then... Who's going to be the next person, right? And so the family slowly, slowly, slowly grows until it becomes a great nation. Um, um, the descendants of Jacob. Um, and so this, this becomes like the nation of Israel. And then in the New Testament, the, the Israel becomes an international, uh, non-geographically bound uh, missionary organization. And then it reaches the whole earth. So we're, we're part, we're part, we're part of, remember, we're sons of Abraham. It started here and now it's radiating out, okay? Um, so let's read Genesis 15. 
the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram, in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Let me just point out real quickly. Notice again, no if-then language. God just says, I'm going to reward you. (laughs) I'm going to protect you. Just promises, right? Blessings. But Abraham, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is uh, Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have, you have given, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, and he said to them, so shall your offspring be, right? And so God promises Abraham this, this great, uh, great amount of descendants. And he doesn't realize it at this point, but it's going to be a great nation. And then even beyond that great nation is going to be this international globe spanning or organization called the church, right? Um, and Abram believed the Lord, and, and he, God, counted it to Abram as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Um, so how does Abram receive this blessing? Through faith. Every time you see faith, it's the complete opposite principle of works. Works is human effort. Faith is basically saying, I don't have good works. It's the open hand that receives the gift, right? Think of faith as like um, a homeless man receiving um, like a, a free meal versus you going out into the workplace and getting a paycheck. So faith is always the opposite principle. And two things are promised, countless offspring and then the land. So Abraham is, off, uh, is promised the land. We'll get to that later. But um, in the Abrahamic covenant, the important principles are that it's unconditional. It does not depend on Abraham's moral performance. And in fact, if you read throughout the story of Abraham, he fails quite a number of times, right? Um, most notably, he should trust um, God um, with his life and with his wife Sarah's life. He can't. So he lies. Uh, she's my sister, right? So Abraham is not this great moral example. Uh, God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I want you to trust and obey me. He said, maybe, maybe God's talking about Hagar, <laughs> right? I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to take on a second wife. Yes, that seems wise to me. So, so Abraham fails constantly, right? If Noah, if, if Noah failed because he got drunk, Abraham certainly failed for, um, for adultery, right? But God blesses him. It's purely based on grace. Um, it's unconditional. Uh, any questions before we get to the real fun, which will be the Mosaic Covenant? Yes, Jeff. So in Galatians it says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Yes. So when God promised Abraham that you have your offerings will be like the stars. The stars? Yeah. Does Abraham know that as physical descendants or spiritual? Like, That's an excellent question. How much does Abraham know the epic scale of what is going to happen through this promise? I think there's some sense because Abraham is like amazed. You know, he, um, I, I think um, he knows it's going to be this miraculous working of God. 
um, Hebrews 11 alludes to how much Abraham knows, right? Hebrews 11 says that uh, Abraham was not looking for any earthly land, but he was looking for a heavenly city. Um, And so Abraham knew that God was ultimately not talking about physical land, but he was talking about something grander and greater. But the actual shape and structure of it, I think Abraham did not fully understand, just like we don't fully understand. What is awaiting us in the new heavens and the new earth? Paul constantly talks about it as it cannot be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to us, right? And so we don't know. We know some sense of it, but the reality would be far grander. And if Abraham could now see that his descendants number in, I don't know how to number it, in the billions, hundreds of millions, it would be unimaginable to Abraham. And he would look at you, Jeff, and he would say, you don't look like a Jew, (laughs) but you are my descendant, right? And so he would be amazed. He would be amazed. Yeah. Does that answer your question or how much did Abraham know, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the the answer is, we don't know how much he knows. (laughs) But I think he definitely knew more than just sort of the narrowest physical confines. Mm. Yeah, because Hebrews 11 says that Abraham, by faith, okay. knew that he was journeying to a heavenly city. He knew he was going to, to New Jerusalem. I see. Yeah. So he knew something Yeah, he believed. Excellent question. Yes, Dorothy? Um, so you've spoken a few times of these like, unconditional promises that yeah. I was wondering if there's any context in which humans in human relationships are supposed to love unconditionally in this way, or is that like a God thing, just like that? Um, like how much do we relate to one another through gospel principles, right? In terms of this like unconditional, like you don't have to do anything. Right. So the unconditionality, so let me revise my statement, right? Because um, I wanted to simp- keep it simple, and not complexify it. Um, there's two kinds of unconditionals. So there's an unconditional basis, and then there's an unconditional um, there's an unconditional working it out, right? So the gospel is only unconditional basis, not unconditional working out, if that makes sense. So does Abraham deserve grace? He does not. Um, does any of his moral perf- subsequent moral performance? have a sort of like, um, is it the foundation of why he's receiving grace? No. So God relates to us unconditionally by grace as the basis, as the foundation. So you could think of it as justification, right? We receive this verdict of righteousness without any merit on our part. But then there's sanctification, right? So does that make God's grace conditional? No, because um, if... God shows you grace and you experience grace, you will have a transformed life. And does that transformed life, is that your work or is that your performance? No, it's just, it's just the fruit or the evidence that you have indeed been transformed. God doesn't just rescue you out of your sin. He also brings you into increasing righteousness, a, a good life. Right? So you could think of that same gospel paradigm, that same gospel principle with all your relationships. Right, you show mercy and grace that they do not deserve, but you're also asking, you're ask, you're also asking for something from them, which is love and consideration. You you want reciprocity, um, 
And so... The mutual Yeah, you could think of it like that. Yeah. So there's something called, you know, in psychology, enabling, right? So you don't want to enable somebody, um, giving them a blank check. Um, God doesn't give us a blank check. But so God's grace is a sanctifying grace, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's just hard for me to make the jump from like God to us. Yes, I, I, one of the, one of the different yeah one of the differences is is that God is perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge. So we're operating with very limited knowledge. But yeah, there's there's no difference between the way God relates to us and the way we ought to relate to each other. Mm-hmm. A lot of people make that sharp distinction. Well, that's God. No, gospel principle should be operative in all human relationships, at least. Among believers, we should treat each other like God treats us, but we have limited wisdom and poor execution, right? Yeah, I just I'm, I feel like in my own personal life, I'm just constantly trying to find the balance between like unconditional love versus boundaries versus enabling versus like being taken advantage of. You know, like <laughs> all of these things are kind of like tipping at the same point. So right. Difficult challenge, yeah. yes. All right, um, let's go to the Abrahamic, sorry, the Mosaic Covenant. Yay, the Mosaic Covenant. All right, so this is going to occupy the rest of the class. The covenant God made uh, through Moses is a puzzle. <laughs> it is very complex and sprawling, first of all. Unlike all these other covenants, which I just, we could read the entirety of the whole passage. Um, it extend, The Mosaic Covenant extends through four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is very detailed. Um, and therefore, um, let me even say this. In places, it sounds contradictory. We'll get to that. Um, so that, that, that deserves a lot of thought. And I'm going to try to do all that thought in about 20 minutes. But let's see. Okay. So here's the central question. This is, if, if you're familiar, if you know the structure if you're familiar with the Bible, this is a question that should bother you. And as you read the Mosaic Covenant, it should constantly be like, it should constantly be this tension in your mind, which is if the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of grace, and is it a covenant of grace? Of course. It cannot contradict Abraham. So if it is a covenant of grace, why does it sound like a covenant of works? It sure sounds like a covenant of works in so many places. We can, we can talk about so many passages. Let me just give you one. Deuteronomy 30, in which it's super, super explicit. Okay, so let me read it to you. Moses says, see, actually he's speaking for God, but this is Moses. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, right? So sounds very much like the garden, okay? What are the stakes? Life and death, okay? Um, if, you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules. Then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Okay? If you obey, then you will live. Verse 17, But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish, right? If you disobey, you will die. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. So 
This very much sounds like a longer version of the Adamic covenant, right? Um, so what's the answer? And the answer is the Mosaic covenant is fundamentally of grace. Okay, you must understand that. It does not contradict Abraham. God does not change his mind. God does not say, Abraham, I'm going to save you by grace. And then, and then he turns around to Moses and he says, actually, I'm going to save you by your good works and performance. The Mosaic covenant cannot overturn or contradict the one before it. And therefore, what's the best way to understand the Mosaic covenant? It is a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. It is just fleshing it out. It is giving more details. The Abrahamic covenant was relatively brief. And then God says, let me fill out the details. Let me give you some more wording. Uh, Let me give you symbolic rituals and language to help you understand what it is I promised Abraham. So let me just show you the grace of the Mosaic Covenant, okay? We, We can spend multiple classes on this, but let me give you one example. This is Exodus 24. By the way, Exodus, um, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, right? So the Exodus 20 chapters is basically Israel at Sinai, okay? So Israel receives the covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and this is what happens. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So they agreed to the terms of the covenant, right? If we obey, we will live. Got it. We will obey. We will do it. I like, I like that can-do spirit. Okay, we will do it. Verse 8. The people commit. So in verse 8. And Moses took the blood. This is the sacrificial animal that he kills in front of them. Okay, and he took the blood and then he threw it on the people. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So it's a very, so by the way, the Bible is a very visual metaphorical book. What is not necessarily said explicitly is often said through rituals and, and imagery. So, which makes it a wonderful piece of literature. <laughs> um, so mo- the people say, we will obey. And Moses says, in response, he takes the blood, uh, animal sacrificial blood, and he just sk- splatters it on the people, right? What is, that, what is that action saying? It's saying, you're going to disobey. <laughs> and you need a substitute. You need a sacrificial lamb. And so right at the beginning of the whole covenant, he's telling the people, you need a savior. So the Mosaic covenant is about Jesus. It's about grace. God, God is already promising forgiveness at the beginning of the presentation of the law. There are other elements of grace in the Mosaic covenant. Like I said, we can go on um, for a long time. Passover. What's the story of Passover? There's a perfect spotless lamb who's... Death and blood covers over the the sins of the people. Hmm. There's the whole elaborate sacrificial system um, by which sins can be atoned for. There's God's multiple statements of self-disclosure. God constantly, when he announces himself, when he discloses himself, he says, I'm a a God merciful and gracious, forgiving sins. He's constantly saying, I'm I'm forgiving you. I'm I'm, going to show you grace. I'm going to show you mercy. There's also multiple prophecies of disobedience and exile. So it's really interesting. Moses constantly says, if you obey, then you will live. If you disobey, then you will will perish from the land. And then he says, and it will happen, (laughs) right? And you will disobey and you will be exiled. And then he'll often say, or he'll all the time say, 
and God will bring you back and God will forgive you, right? So that's forgiveness and return is grace. So then what is this conditional language about? What, why is there all this if-then language? And so here's the answer. And this answer, in my opinion, <laughs> like it, I, I first came into a deeper understanding of this. I remember when I was in seminary, I'm still working out the implications of it because I think it is so profound. It's, it, it blows my mind. So let me say this, okay? So the answer is the Mosaic Covenant has this profound duality, okay? It's a very, shall I say, unique covenant in that sense. It has a duality. It has like, like almost two natures to it. On the one hand, it is absolutely, fundamentally a covenant of grace. Everyone inside the Mosaic Covenant is saved by grace. Everyone. However, there is a covenant of works operating principle inside of it. Um, And you see that all throughout the New Testament. Every time Paul wants to say, you're saved by grace, not by works, when he says not by works, he always cites not the Adamic covenant in Eden, he always cites the Mosaic covenant. He always goes back to Moses as a negative example. Does that make sense? He, oh, every time Paul talks about the Mosaic covenant, it's almost always in negative terms as an example of human performance or human obedience. So let me give you an example. Galatians 3, verses 11 through 12. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. He's, this is in reference to the Abrahamic covenant, right? Sounds a lot like the Abrahamic covenant. Um, but the law is not of faith. This is a huge principle in Paul if, you, if, you, if you're familiar with his love letters. So let me just write it. The law is not faith. Faith is the operating principle of the Abrahamic covenant. And law is the operating principle of the Mosaic Covenant. So he's always contrasting the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. right? He says the law is not a faith. They're opposite systems. And then he gives you as another quote. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's a quote from Leviticus. So he gives two quotes. He quotes the Mosaic Covenant. He quotes the Abrahamic Covenant. And he says they're opposites. Right? So therefore, there's a duality in the Mosaic Covenant. Even though it's a continuation of the Abrahamic Covenant, it is also in contrast. You could even say in contradiction to the Abrahamic Covenant. So what is going on? Why? It seems like it's a U-turn. Right? It seems like God is contradicting himself. Here's the answer. The Mosaic Covenant is based on good works, not with respect to our salvation, but with respect to the land. Okay? So it is a kind of repetition of the Abraham of the Adamic covenant of works, but only when it comes to the land. Okay? And you see that, for example, in Deuteronomy 30, right? Um, if you go back to Deuteronomy 30, in verse 16... 
Remember, it says, then you shall live and multiply, right? That's the second half of verse 16. And God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So notice the bless, this conditional language has to do with the land. Verse 18, God says, you will perish. And then what does he say? Is he talking about eternal death, right? Hell? He says, you shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. So it has to do with the land. So here's the answer, okay? The, the, the Mosaic Covenant is, is, is a covenant of works. <laughs> it's such a messy... Okay. It's a covenant of works when it comes to the promised land. And the, the physical land. So God doesn't give the land to the people. Their 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 possession of land is not unconditional. It is very much conditional. That's the Mosaic covenant. Whether they stay in the land is completely dependent, not on God's mercy, right? It's like the people disobey and God says, "I show mercy anyway, and you get the land." No. Their, their staying in the land has to do with their obedience. Why? And the key is to realize that the promised land is, is often described as a second Eden. Let me give you two passages. There are several more. Isaiah 51.3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts her, all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Or Joel 2.3, The land is like the garden of Eden before them. Um, if you read descriptions of the land, the descriptions are almost over the top, especially if you've ever gone to present-day modern-day Israel. Um, a lot of people think there's been a significant climate change, so it, it, it was much more lush. But it's still over the top. It's still over the top. The language is just ridiculous. It just seems like this lush garden, you know, and like milk and honey is just flowing out. You know, you just scoop down, pick up some honey, right? The land is so lush because it is depicted as another Eden. And if, if the people of Israel, if Israel is entering Eden, what does that make Israel? It makes Israel Adam. They are a corporate Adam. And they're placed in a garden land and then they're given a law to obey. And they're told, if you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you will be, you will perish and you will be kicked out. So this is a re-dramatization of the Adamic covenant. So the Mosaic covenant is going back and it's re-dramatizing, re-enacting, replaying what happened in Eden. And so Israel um, repeats Adam's mistake or failure. Adam disobeys and he's expelled from the garden. By the way, the Bible has all these little details that if you notice them, it's just so symbolically beautiful. Which direction is um, Adam expelled from? It's a Steinbeck book, by the way. East, right? There's a, there's a book called East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Did anyone not read it in, in high school and so forth? Yeah, if, if you read East of Eden, oh, it's just, I remember it gave me the heebie-jeebies, right? It's just like, um, it's just people being nasty and selfish and cruel and mean to each other. Because um, that's life East of Eden. So Adam is expelled east in an eastward direction. Now, why would the Bible randomly say it was east? 
That's because when Israel is exiled from the promised land and they go, they're taken in captivity to Babylon, which direction is it? It's east. They're reenacting the story of Adam. Do you understand? This is really crazy to me because the history of Israel stretches over a thousand years. So it's a thousand year retelling of the Garden of Eden. Yes? So if the land is the condition, the conditional part of the, of the covenant, what is the unconditional part of the covenant? That we will surely be saved in Jesus Christ. And so I think another way to think of it is the land, the physical land, is actually a symbol of what we were supposed, of what we're going to receive in Christ. Because what is the land? What is the essence of the land? It's not just that it's lush and beautiful and there's milk and honey. What is in the middle of the land? What's the most significant structure in the middle of the land? The temple. What does the temple represent? God. Yeah. God's presence. Do you remember what's the greatest treasure Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden? They walked with God. I think uh, Christy's asking to Israel what was the unconditional part of the promise. Like we know the unconditional part of the promise is ultimate, you know. What the land was pointing forward to, which is fellowship with God forever and ever in Jesus Christ. And the temple's destroyed. It's very symbolic yeah. and meaningful. Yeah. And what's the grace part of the covenant for the for the Israelites? That if they put their faith and trust in this promised Messiah, they will enjoy what the land was always pointing forward to, which is fellowship with God forever and ever. Okay. So salvation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, I think so. I'm just trying to see how that fits into the verses that. I'll have to think about it more. You mean like a greater land, a greater... Which is what Hebrews 11 says, right? Yeah. So um, the Mosaic Covenant, as I said, there's a duality. There's, a, there's, there's salvation and then there's the land, but they're deeply connected. So the Mosaic Covenant is saying, I will save you, <laughs> believe and you'll be saved. And then it's also saying, you better obey or else you're going to be exiled from the land. And that you better, you better obey is just retelling the story of Adam in the garden. And at the end of the story, when the Israelites are in chains, carried away weeping and crying to Babylon, this is, when, this is the thought that was heading them. I get it now. The law is a dead end. Keeping the law is utterly futile as a pathway to righteousness. This is what Jesus was tr- and Paul was trying to tell the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees are saying, you know what the problem with the Jewish people was? We just didn't try hard enough. <laughs> and the whole thousand year story of Israel is supposed to tell people, you cannot try hard enough. I'll give you a thousand years. Try really hard. Right? And so the whole point is that the only hope is the Savior. The only hope is a perfect lamb who will take away the sins of the world. Christ is the only hope. Human obedience is not enough. Let me read to you um, Galatians 3. You, you see this so clearly there too. Now before faith came, faith is you know, Paul's way to talk about the gospel. Now before faith came, we were held captive 
under the law. That's the Mosaic law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be, would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So let me unpack that a little bit. Um, what, like what is a guardian? A guardian is like a chaperone, right? It's somebody who's like standing over you and watching over you. Um, the actual Greek word there is, it means like a, a, an instructor or a tutor. Um, some other translations say the law is our tutor. So think, you can think of the Mosaic law as like a really mean, strict, like um, nanny tutor. And they're like constantly slapping your wrist. And they're constantly saying, this is wrong. This is wrong. You know, how come you're, you're, you're messing up? And God gave us this tutor to show us, like he gave us a test that was impossible to pass, if that makes sense. Or he gave us like, he gave us sheet, I'm thinking, I'm looking at Ashley. So he gave us sheet music, right? That is just like ridiculous and impossible. Like the chords, the human fingers cannot touch all the notes. And then the, the instructor is just like slapping our wrist constantly. You're, you're failing, you're, you're, you're doing poorly. So that we would realize the whole point of the exercise is that we put our hands down and we despair of our own performance. And what we need is Jesus Christ, our substitute, who will do this for us. And so there's this thousand-year drama of where we're, we're captive to this fruitless cycle of disobedience and death in the Old Testament. And when you read the Old Testament, there is a kind of repetitiveness to it, but that's the point. And you know when you read it, you'll read like a hundred years in like five minutes, and then you're, you know, you're not getting the full effect. You have to think about what the people experience, right? And they would have temporary revivals. They would have Solomon. They would have Hezekiah and Josiah. People were like, it's going to happen. We're going to keep the Mosaic Covenant. And then, no. (laughs) The whole point is to come to a place of utter despair. It's to beat any hope of self-salvation out. And then let me read verse 26. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's the point. What is one of the reasons why we read the Old Testament? It's to kind of experientially travel through the experience of Israel and to help us to realize we need Jesus Christ as our Savior. Um, any, any questions on that? That's it. That, that, that's my class. I, I hope I I hope I explained. Now you can say the Mosaic Covenant. I got it. <laughs> I understand the duality of it all. Um, any questions on that aspect? All right, let's pray. Almighty God, um, there are layers and depths in Scripture. And we can spend the rest of our lives studying it, looking intently upon it. Indeed, the angels look intently at the drama of salvation and they are in awe and wonder. Lord, we pray that we would have that same eagerness and longing to understand. And even now, our understanding is so thin and so preliminary. I pray that you would give us a deep love of Scripture a deep longing to know you. Um, Please show us the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.